Hello there. Welcome to episode four of Words with Writers podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Canadian Authors Association Toronto branch. We are a membership-based organization for writers in all levels, areas, and genres of the writing profession. We are your hosts, Brandy Tanner and Chris Gorman. As always, we're thrilled you're joining us today. Last month, we had a special episode featuring five of our Canadian author members reading from their work. So this month, we are focusing on the interview portion of our show. On this episode, we dive into so many great topics in our interview portion that we couldn't bear to cut a minute from it. So this show is one of our longest yet. Yes, that's right, Chris. We have lots of other things to talk about today as well. So today we'll talk about some events and contests to keep you busy for the rest of August and into September. But we won't take too long to get into the key part of our show, which is our discussion with poet and creative entrepreneur, Gavin Barrett. Gavin will take us behind the scenes with his new poetry collection, Understand, and share with us the importance of inclusion and diversity within our industry and community. Lastly, we will let you know the fabulous things our members are up to right now. So now that we know what's coming up, let's get on with the show. Thanks, Brandy. I'm looking forward to this one. While Canadian Authors Toronto has paused our monthly events to take a much needed summer break, there are still a number of virtual events you can take part in. Firstly, we want to encourage you to register for LiterAsian 2020. Launched in 2013 as a community building initiative of the Asian Canadian Writers Workshop, LiterAsian is an annual festival of Pacific Rim Asian Canadian writing. The first of its kind within Canada, the festival's purpose is to promote and celebrate the works of Asian Canadian writers and artists through author readings, panel discussions, and workshop events. It creates important and unique networking opportunities between professional and emerging writers, students, and members of the broader public to learn and discuss topics of importance to Asian Canadian writing. A number of established and emerging authors and academics will be attending LiterAsian 2020. An eclectic blend of emerging and established writers and editors, each individual will bring their own style and voice to speak to this year's theme of Quiet No More, a festival against racism and hate. The festival already started as of August 15th, but the events continue until August 30th. So please register for free and see the full schedule of events at LitterAsian.com slash 2020-event-schedule. And LitterAsian is spelt L-I-T-E-R-A-S-I-A-N. I love the, uh, the theme of that one, Brandy. Quiet, no more. Especially when you listen to the interview with our guest this month, it fits right in. Exactly, yes. We're not having our own events this month, so this is our feature event that we're encouraging everyone to attend, and it, it fits in with everything that's going on in the world and, and certainly our own interview today. That sounds amazing. As part of the LiterAsian Festival, our very own Jeannie Gerard will be hosting anthology or magazine, writing and submitting to a literary publication with Alan Cho, on Saturday, August 29th. 
So if you're not already registered, please take a moment to sign up. I'm registered for that one, and I hope to see some of our listeners there as well. So moving on, we'd like to keep you updated on all the exciting webinar series that Canadian Authors has partnered with SF Canada for. We hope you had a chance to check out the webinar held on August 19th, How to Build Worlds Without Boring Your Reader, presented by Melissa Yee, which focused on tips for efficient research and how to write your world in a way that entertains your readers. More webinars are forthcoming, so stay tuned and keep checking canadianauthors.org national for future sessions. Thanks, Randy. In addition to our online events, every month we pick out some contests for you to consider. So here we go. We have Ms. Lexia Magazine currently staging their 2020 Fiction and Memoir Competition, which includes several different contests of varying genres. Some of these include flash fiction, children's and YA novel, short story, and memoir and life writing. They all have a deadline of September 21st, but the fees and the prizes do vary for each type of competition. So please go to mslexia.co.uk slash competitions for full details. And if nonfiction is more of your thing, the Boulevard Nonfiction Contest for Emerging Writers can be submitted until September 30th. You could win the first prize of $1,000 and publication in Boulevard and the entry fee is $16 per essay. You can get further details and links for all these contests and more at canadianauthors.org slash national slash links slash awards dash competitions. Great, and we have one last thing to mention, certainly not least. We still have the CAA Toronto Virtual Writing Circle going strong, so if you're interested in participating in this virtual safe space to gather feedback on works in progress, please email Canadian Authors Toronto co-president J.F. Gerard, hello at jfgarrard.com. Awesome. And that wraps up the event and contest portion of our show. So now, get cozy, get comfy, and get ready for our interview with Gavin Barrett. Last month on Words with Writers podcast, we had a little bit of a special episode. On Painting a Picture with Words, we had five of our Canadian Authors members join us to read an excerpt from their work. This month, we are excited to have one of those members return to the show as our featured interview guest. It is our great pleasure to welcome back the one and only Gavin Barrett. Yay! Well, Gavin, thank you for being here. Gavin is a poet and creative entrepreneur. Born in Bombay, which is now Mumbai, Gavin lived in Hong Kong for several years before immigrating to Canada with his wife and daughters. 
She has a bachelor's degree in economics from St. Xavier's College in Bombay and an MA in English literature from Bombay University. Gavin's poetry has been published in an assortment of anthologies and literary journals in India and Canada. He released his first collection of poems, Understand, in July of this year. In addition to being a poet, he is also the founder, host, and series co-curator of the Tartan Turban Secret Readings, a Toronto reading series that focuses on giving emerging visible minority writers a stage. He is the co-founder of Barrett and Welsh, a firm that specializes in diversity and inclusion communications and urban sustainable development branding and advertising. That's an amazing resume, Gavin. And I got to attend one of your Tartan Turban secret readings uh, back in February, I believe it was, just before the pandemic set in. And I was instantly hooked, uh, would love to attend more. And I can't wait to hear more about you. So let's put our hands together and welcome back to the podcast, Gavin Barrett. Thank you so much for having me back. And it's a delight to be here. And thank you. I loved the last podcast. I was, I felt very fortunate to be among such incredible writers and I'm very glad to be back. I'm looking forward to this. Thanks, Brandy. Thank, thanks, Chris. Thanks, Gavin. We really enjoyed the poetry you read for us in July, and we appreciate you coming back for a longer conversation. So let's start with your recently released poetry collection, Understand. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of the collection? Uh, yeah, Understand is a collection that brings together some 35 years of uh, poetry that some of it was actually meant to be published 35 years ago in a series of books by brand new poets at the time, young poets. Uh, but that venture folded after three volumes were brought out and I was to be the fourth poet in that series. Uh, and so there are poems from way back uh, and there are poems that are very recent uh, that were written as recently as last year. And it's, I, I think of Understand as a reflective journey. It sort of traverses internal mindscapes uh, as well as real geographies because I've lived in and traveled in through many, many different places in my life and uh, they've all had an impact on me. And I think that shows up. But I also, because of it being a, a, a journey in poetry through this internal landscape, it's also reflective, uh, reflects on belief and superstition. Uh, and I like to think that it does that in a democratic fashion, but I suspect it might be more like a crazy man yelling at every car passing on the street. You know, rather than, <laughs> or a you know, dog barking every bicycle. So, but I do believe I cover a fair bit of ground in that manic way in this book. <laughs> well, you did speak of reflection there, so that'll take me into our next question. Uh, CBC Books called Understand a Reflective Journey Through What Lies Below the Surface of a Man's Life. So I'm wondering, would you say, Poetry is a form of catharsis for you? And how do you balance the personal emotion behind your poetry with making it into a commercially viable piece? Why don't I start with that last bit? 
uh, commercially viable and I'll work backwards through the rest of the question. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure that I can ever think of poetry, let alone my poetry, as commercially viable. I think very, very brave people publish poetry and very foolish people still persist in writing it. And, and I certainly count myself in the foolish set. Uh, I'm very grateful that anyone saw fit and such a good publishing house as Marenzi saw fit to publish it. So commercially viable, questionable, but how do I make it fit perhaps for publication is, is, is a process of very hard work. I kept working at the poetry, uh, some of it I worked on until March of this year, revising it, uh, making edits on my own. And yeah, I, so it's just, it's just persistence, a lot of, additional reflection. The cathartic part, I don't know if I can think of my poetry, at least my experience of writing poetry as cathartic, uh, because I find myself in a position where I am its victim and almost, you know, the, the poetry arrives and it demands to be taken care of. And most of my work in first writing the poem is to put it down, as it arrives, and then later begins the really hard work of shaping it and giving it a form, a structure that I believe I can live with or that reflects the thoughts that came with it on its first visit. I, lo I love the way you said that, that it arrives and demands to be taken care of. Uh, You're its victim. I, I love that response. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, because you have no control over it. Yeah, you don't sure. know wh wh when it will be that. Uh, I, th I think um, there's a, when you're writing nonfiction or, or fiction, uh, which I also do, I've not attempted to get any of that published yet, but, it, you know, there's, there's a much more steady process, uh, you know, but characters and storylines very often can take over a book, uh, even for uh, writers of fiction. I, I think with poetry, it is only that. It feels like it's only that until that moment is done and behind you. Then the real hard work of working on the poem begins. But that first moment, those first moments are, you, you don't know when it's going to happen and you have to stop what you're, what you're doing <laughs> and, and yeah. pay attention. Absolutely. Um, my own office is, uh, it's littered with piles of ideas and half-formed thoughts that arrive and jot them down before they leave and lose. And uh, I've managed to at least get them all in the same room of the house. So that's good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I have the, I have these thick notebooks that I, you know, jot and I have these tiny, tiny little traveling notebooks, which are, you know, about that big. You can't see, you can't see yeah. that on your podcast, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, I have the same thing, little pocket yeah. size. Yeah, ones yeah. 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 It's uh, very useful. Sorry. Back to you. Yeah, no worries. So how did you choose the title, Understand? Is there meaning behind it or? Yes, uh, there is. Uh, most fundamentally, I think the book comes from the title poem. There is, a, uh, there is a poem in the book called Understand, but the word stan means country or place. And, and because so much of the poetry in the book is, a, is reflective poetry, is inward looking, whether, whether I'm looking into myself or looking into others, the, the idea of diving below the surface uh, lent itself naturally to the combination of under and stan, uh, which, you know, there's also the link to uh, the country I come from, 
which in the West is known as India, but in India is known as Hindustan. You know, it's a word that has its roots in Persian, actually, Stan. So a lot of the, a lot of the themes are actually woven through the poetry in the book, but it also resides in the title, uh, which has right. this layer of understand uh, with the D missing uh, and understand with, you know, this place below the surface. Uh, and so you're, so you're diving below the surface of the country of yourself. In a sense. Yes. Yes. And I hope, I hope in, into the landscape of others, the interior scapes of others. Uh, I, I think the job of a poet is very often to do that in a way that is not centered solely on the self, but to find something that is universal and universally accessible, uh, which is why I think poetry very often has so many other meanings for other, other readers than for the original writer. That's, that's a gift back to the writer that other people have that experience. For sure. It's, I just uh, perusing your, your website before we started, I saw a, a little review from the Minerva reader that I'd take a second to read. It says, there's such joy in these poems, such sensual, vivid, rich detail. These portraits of fragile and temulous moments are both cinematic and moving. And when you read for us last month, I thought exactly that. So I think you've, you've definitely done a good job of diving below the surface. Thank you. Yes, that's a, that's a good review. I felt the same way we were on last time. So that's a very good way of putting it. I do wonder, when did your love of poetry start? Were there any particular people or events in your life that introduced you to writing and sparked your enjoyment in it? I, you know, I began, I guess, uh, I, I learned to read very early. I was apparently, my mother told me, a very early reader and surprised her, in fact. Uh, but she was a professor of literature, my mother, and she went back to university when she was in her 40s, I think, and acquired one master's degree and then a second master's degree and then a, you know, a master's in philosophy and info, you know, and went on and on and on. She just basically acquired one degree after the other. And when she went back to university to study literature, she would bring back notes home. And because I was the oldest in the home, I would help her, you know, her friend's notes. She couldn't attend all the lectures. She couldn't attend all the sessions. And I would help her transcribe her notes. And I found it fascinating to both read the texts, to read the poetry, uh, and then to read the criticism of that poetry or the analysis of that poetry. There, there was a lot of close reading, uh, and I was drawn deep into the beauty of words and the, the, the layers of meaning they could contain. Uh, I had already begun, I didn't know it was poetry, I'd already begun writing uh, by then, uh, and I was writing quite prolifically. Uh, and then I, I sort of realized what I was writing was poetry. Remember when I began sharing it to my mother, she identified it. And yeah, so I owe my discovery of literature to her and my discovery of, of the joy of reading the poetry of others to her. That's sort of how I began. I might have been about eight when I first wrote. By 11, I was writing prolifically. And it's probably none of it worth seeing. <laughs> is the truth, like most 11-year-old poetry. But it was great fun. It was very satisfying to me. It's awesome. Yeah, I get my love of writing and reading from my mother as well. So that really speaks there to you. There you go. <laughs> we all seem to have someone in our life that gave birth to our passions. Eh? Yeah, yeah, very much so. 
so Gavin, can you tell us a little bit more about your writing process? I know you've already talked a little bit about poetry and the ideas just arriving and demanding to be put down. So it might be a little more relevant to your fiction and nonfiction writing. But do you have a routine or a certain time of day or place where you sit? And There's a couple of things. I, and I can say something more about how it applies to my poetry, in fact, because that's the thing I write most. I think when I write, I try to put myself in, I, I, I call this, uh, I call it a state of grace because it, I spoke about this at my book launch. It might even seem profane to use the words state of grace because so much of my poetry is, you know, full of rage or anger or despair or even eroticism, you know, whereas state of grace is very often interpreted uh, in a religious sense. But I don't mean it in a religious sense. I mean it in a, in a mystical sense because poetry for me feels like it's a compact with the mystical. You have to be ready to receive it and you have to be empty to be filled. And in a sense, one receives poems. They are, this is another metaphor, now they're like the angels that visited Jacob. They appear and uh, you receive them. And then after that, you have to wrestle with them. So being receptive very often means that I, can, I cannot have a routine because I'm at the mercy of the poem. But then the routine does emerge uh, when the wrestling begins. Uh, and certainly when fashioning a coherent collection of poetry. For me, I've always tended to work very well late at night, very late at night, uh, in my study at home. But during the summer, I love working outdoors. I love writing outdoors in my backyard. So that's sort of my favorite place. I spend you know, as much time as I can out there, too frequently pausing the writing to look at the birds. <laughs> you know, but, uh, but, I, I, but I love being outdoors. Uh, it's, it's just a, the, the act of writing, of rewriting poetry, of editing poetry is, uh, is an act of both commitment and distance. So I have to do it in bursts and then take a pause and then come back to it after, you know, after creating some distance that the pause gives me. Well, the, even the way you answer our questions here, um, a state of grace, you have to be empty, be empty to be filled. Even your answers are poetic. <laughs> it flows through every part of his being, Brandy. Yeah. <laughs> it, might, it might have something to do with the amount of scotch I drink. So to get a little bit into the business of writing, Understand was published by Mowensi House Publishers. Uh, can you tell us about how did your work make it to publication with them? And what was it like to work with them? And I guess this is kind of a two or threefold question. We're also wondering what the editing process was like with them. Mowensi House was interestingly the, the only publisher I submitted this manuscript to, and they were the first publisher I submitted this manuscript to for Understand. The reason I wanted it to go to Mowensi House first was because there are basically two publishers that I know of, I might be wrong, two publishers in Canada that focus so accurately or, or reflect so accurately Canadian diversity and, and, and devote themselves to bringing it to life and to their reading public. I would have perhaps considered one other but Mowensi House accepted me uh, right off the bat, and I was very grateful for that. I find their, their roster of authors remarkable because you have authors from 
China, Canadians who hail from China, from you know various parts of Africa, whether it's Somalia or, or West Africa, there are indigenous writers on the roster. They do an incredible job of reflecting the, the wealth that literary diversity can be in Canada, but I don't know too many others doing that work. So for me, I felt at home sending it to them. I, I felt, and that was sort of one of the criteria for me, that I had to feel comfortable with where I sent my poetry so that it would be received after I had received it and written it and crafted it. It could be received in a, in a place that was open to such work, uh, and certainly a writer like myself. So that was why Mowenzi and how it went to Mowenzi and how it got accepted by them. In terms of working with Mowenzi and the editing process, uh, so I had an editing process that began long before. I even sent the book out to Mowenzi House. And that, in that process, I worked with the editor and poet, Fraser Sutherland. And Fraser and I were introduced by my good friend, the novelist, Mayank Bhatt. He was on my case to get my poetry published, and I was complaining that I didn't have en enough distance from the work that I had written. I had too many poems. I didn't know how to shape it into a book. I was struggling with, with distance and, and overwhelmed with the amount of work. And he said, ah, oh, that's easy. I'll introduce you to Fraser. And uh, so Fraser and I worked together on our own, and he was, he was extraordinary, and he helped me whittle down the poems into a, into a single volume, and almost everything in this uh, poetry collection is part of that work of, of reducing some 200 poems into a set of 60. And Fraser made comments, and he told me what he liked. We had conversation about things that were perhaps arcane to him, but were extremely clear to me, most of which are still in the book. He was a very, Fraser is a well-traveled international, uh, you know, poet. So he was, he is, he was a very open-minded editor and I enjoyed working with him. And then when the book went to Mowenzi, uh, I went, it went through two rounds of edits. It was very, uh, there were very little edits that needed to be made. Perhaps that was the outcome of my process with Fraser. Fraser himself chose poems that he said were ready for publication and needed almost no work at all. So there was almost no work to be done when it did go to Mowenzi, but there were, there were, there were comments. There were, there were mostly copy edits, uh, you know, from a consistency of uh, punctuation standpoint, uh, certain line breaks, uh, things like that, uh, but excellent work on their part things that I had missed. And then M.G. Vasanji, who, is, uh, an, who owns Mowenzi House with his wife, Noor Jahan, who was the first round editor, M.G. Vasanji stepped in and looked over the final round. And again, almost no edits at all, but we had a fascinating exchange because in, in a fit of poetic license in one part of the book, I sort of used an allusion to nuclear physics. Uh, I mentioned something about the, the nature of neutrinos. And not many people know that M.G. Vasanji is a nuclear physicist. He's a two-time Giller Prize winner and a novelist, but he is also uh, a nuclear physicist from MIT and, you know, I think the University of Pennsylvania and then U of T. Uh, where he was doing postdoctoral research. So when a nuclear physicist tells you something about 
how your poetic license is wrong when it refers to the neutrino, you listen. <laughs> and uh, I did. And I changed that line. Uh, there were a couple of other lines that I changed. Uh, it was very good. It was very few edits that were made, but they were very good edits. And it was a dream to work with Morenzi. It was a dream to work with Fraser before that. Uh, I enjoyed the process. It was not as, I, was, I feared it before I got into it, but when I got into it, I really enjoyed it. And I thought it really made the work excellent. So I'm grateful. Especially with poetry, because it's so personal, right? And somebody else is coming in and giving you input on what you should change about something that you've given birth to uh, from the deepest part of your being. I can yeah. imagine you'd be scared. <laughs> yes, yes. There, there, there is, a, I, can, I can share another funny story if, uh, about about this process. And this is a discussion I had both with Fraser and as well as with, with MG, which was, should I capitalize God? Which is interesting because I had in an, an act of resistance, I decided to lowercase the letter G throughout. And uh, Fraser felt it should be made uppercase. Uh, and MG Vasanji was okay with it being lowercase, I believe, but asked me to render scotch with an uppercase S. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, Implying no Scotch problem. was your god. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and he may be right. <laughs> Who knows? Uh, so I, I did. Uh, so Scotch is everywhere an uppercase S. And god, I think, I, I'm not sure. In some cases, lowercase. In some cases, other. That's fascinating. I like it. <laughs> You've been published in both India and Canada. Can you tell us a little bit about the differences between those two publishing worlds? I left India in 1991, and it was a very different world than it is today. So India, Indian publishing at the moment is extremely vibrant. There are many independent publishers. Uh, they do an incredible job. They have Writers that are renowned world over, you know, Booker Prize winners uh, and writers of that ilk, and excellent editors. There's there there's an, one of the world's best uh, literary agents, in my opinion, uh, in India, and they have a, a literary festival called the Jaipur Literary Festival, which is massive. That writers from all over the world want to uh, come to and read at, but that didn't exist when I was in India myself. None of this existed. It was a very difficult, challenging environment in which writers of Indian writers who wrote in English, uh, you know, existed. Writers who wrote in Indian languages, uh, I had a far, a far more vibrant literary scene, a far more stable literary scene, as is, you know, as should be expected. But so each generation of Indian writers writing in English struggled to get a literary scene set up and, you know, established for that generation. And that happened to my generation of writers too. Uh, we were struggling to get that established. And a few of us collaborated with poets and writers of the previous generation to try to get something started. And I was lucky to be part of that. The Bombay Poetry Circle was one of those things. Uh, I was lucky to be there at its first meeting, for example. That was my contribution to collaborate with those other writers who wanted to get this going. And then I left India. <laughs> and I, I have no idea what happened until it exploded with action. 
Canada was super organized. You know, you had books that were, but, you know, told you how to get published. You had self-publishing already when I arrived here in 96. Um, there was, I think, something called the writer's market. There was uh, word on the street, which was, you know, one of the reasons I felt comfortable coming to Canada, because I thought if you could have such a massive festival that took over Queen Street, shut it down, that's, that's where it ran at the time, and shut it down. And everyone came out, millions of people to buy books and listen to writers, then this was a good place for me to live. I, and I, it sort of reinforced my, my decision to immigrate to Canada. Uh, so a very different scene than India at the time that I left. But I had a lot of trouble breaking in to Canadian writing. I am not a person who submits to anything, any journals, you know, frequently. I'm, I'm very reluctant to let go of my poetry. So it's with great reluctance I send anything off. And if I get a rejection, I think, well, see, I shouldn't have sent it off. And I think there are many writers who feel that. But in my case, in particular, I felt like I was an outsider. I felt that I brought a voice and a set of experiences that were not fully reflected in the Canadian writing that I was reading. And that was part of the reason why I was being rejected. Uh, there was no Mowenzi House, the, you know, at that time. Uh, and though the, the publication that M.G. Vasanji was running, which was originally called the Toronto South Asian Review, and then became the Toronto Review of Contemporary Writing Abroad, uh, that publication happened to be, in a pure coincidence, the first publication that accepted my work. Uh, and they published a long poem called Apologia, which is in this book as well. And so MG was uh, the first person to publish me in Canada and then the second. <laughs> Which is, it's, uh, that's amazing. Um, but it's sad that you can come to such a, a country like this that is so multicultural and feel that you, the work that you're creating isn't what the publishers want. Mm. Yes. So I'm, I'm glad that there's a Moenzi house. Now. Yes. And hopefully, yes. hopefully there'll be a lot more in the future. Yeah, I, yeah. I hope so. I, I, I hope, you know, the, the other public, uh, publishing houses, Guernica, uh, you know, they do a fairly diverse bunch of writers. They themselves started with a focus on immigrant writers originally from Italy and diversified from there. And that those immigrant voices became a part of the Canadian literary landscape. And that's really good. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that's extremely enriching. Working with Mowenzi House, what avenues have you taken for marketing and promotion? Do you find most of the promotional work was done by you or is it mostly handled by Mowenzi House? I attended your virtual book launch. So much fun, by the way. And I'm wondering how useful did you find that was for promotion and for sales? I don't have very much visibility into book sales. So I don't know how well the book is doing or not. I'm assuming it's doing well because everyone I know has told me they've, uh, they've bought a copy. I hope it's doing well. I have a lot of friends in many different places in the world and uh, they're very, very kind and supportive of, of me. So I'm hoping it's doing well. I, uh, Mowenzi House is a very small publisher, but they do very hard work in terms of promoting the book. Uh, so I'm very grateful. I don't know all of the things that, because I'm new to this, I don't know all of the things that go into marketing a book. But because my day job is in advertising and marketing, 
I can't stop myself from being involved. So I'm hoping that that's a help to Moenzi. I so I yes, I actively do my own marketing with one of my close friends and colleagues at the agency I own designed the book cover and some of the promotional materials that I'm using to promote it. Our PR division has sent out press releases to various literary periodicals and to get the book reviewed. So I'm involved actively, but I'm independently of Moenzi, but I know that they actively do their own book promotion work, submitting it to festivals, trying to get reviews out there. So they do, and they do a, an excellent job. I'm in their hands and I'm very confident with that, but I can't stop myself from doing my own work because that's just who I am. That's excellent. We had an event last year, I believe it was, called Meet the Agents with the Canadian Authors Association. And at that event, the agents said, even going with a major publisher, you're going to have to do a lot of your own promotion. So this just confirms that. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad I'm, <laughs> I'm not getting in the way and actually helping them. Uh, that's good. That's good. You know, I, 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 I keep it up. Yeah, yeah. I'll keep sharing everywhere I can. I'm quite shameless that way. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, so you are also the founder, host, and series co-curator of the Tartan Turban Secret Readings. I mentioned that at the start because uh, it was the first time I'd been to one and I loved it. But what can you tell us about how the series started and what your, I suppose, ultimate goals, if you will, are for it? So the series started in 2017, which was, you know, around the time of Canada's 150th anniversary in May specifically, uh, which is Asian Heritage Month, was our very first reading. And it started because I had this glorious office space available to me after hours, the company I own. It has, it sits there. It's this massive open concept office space and it has a beautiful rooftop deck with, with a view of Lake Ontario. It's located in the beaches. And I didn't want it to sit there and do nothing after hours. I wanted to put it to use in a way that served the creative community that any ad agency belongs to and the physical community in which we were located in Toronto's East End. So, and I'd always wanted to do something in the world of literary uh, readings. So I, that's how it sort of got started. And uh, I reached out to my uncle, who has been a friend ever since he arrived in Canada. And he said, I'll help you, you know, bring in writers. And so he became my co-curator throughout. What was I trying to do? I, what am I trying to do with the Todd and Turban Secret Readings? When I came to Canada in 1996, I found great writers everywhere, unsurprisingly. But I also, but surprisingly, I found very few who looked like me. As an Indian writer, a writer uh, who comes from India, that is a country that has produced great writers for aeons, uh, in, in, including in English. You know, I'm just to name two, Salman Rushdie and Arundhati Roy. And at that level in Canada, at that time, in 96, this was, there was really only Ondaatje, who is Sri Lankan, and there was M.G. Vasanji, and later, a little later, Rowan's in Mystery. And I was a little confused by that because Canada was already very diverse. And Toronto was already very diverse. And it became apparent to me quickly enough as I got exposed to grassroots literary life. And, you know, you can see why immediately uh, when you look at the grassroots. I began going out to readings 
and right right from those early uh, my early years in Canada, and I was the most visible minority because I was often the only visible minority, and that's a very disturbing thing to experience, even if it's not intentional. And even today, in you know, Toronto is fifty two percent visible minority. Uh, but even today, only two reading series, and one of them is the Tartan Turban Secret Readings, only two reading series actually focus on spotlighting BIPOC, Black, Indigenous, and people of color voices. Uh, so I think the Tartan Turban Secret Readings, I think of it as a conspiracy uh, between me and my unk, but the novelist. Uh, it's a conspiracy between us to change that. Uh, Mayank is the series co-curator and co-founder, but more accurately, you could describe him as my co-conspirator. And we're in collusion to make Toronto's literary scene look a lot more like Toronto. One way I put this is, I say the literary landscape has always been a lot of vanilla and very little chocolate. And I like chocolate. The darker, the better. <laughs> That's uh, that's a conspiracy I can get behind again. <laughs> so on that note, on, on top of everything else, you're also the co-founder of Barrett and Welsh. As we said before, that's a firm that specializes in diversity and inclusion. And I, I believe you recently were part of a group that spearheaded an open letter that was circulated in June asking agencies and clients to commit to 15 steps to improve representation of Black, Indigenous, and people of color's talent in Canada's advertising and marketing industries. So could you tell us a little bit about that, how that came about, and the type of response you've received? Sure. When you run an agency that focuses on reaching minority Canadians, this subject is always top of mind. It's, it's very easy to see. The thing is, I, I, I think it, this particular uh, action, if you will, has its roots for me personally, because there's a group of us working and for, for each, of the, each of the people working on this initiative. Uh, it has its roots in different things. For me personally, it began two years ago. I wrote this article uh, decrying the lack of minorities in Canadian advertising. And I've been in advertising in Canada since 96. That's 24 years. And in that time, I've seen very little change. Toronto itself has changed dramatically. And today, as I was saying earlier, Toronto has visible minority population. That's 52% visible minority. But Toronto advertising agencies are 73% white. And this has massive ramifications for representation and far-reaching ramifications. Uh, brand ads and brand messages don't reflect what visible minority Canadians look like, sound like think like. And in effect, because of that, they actively exclude visible minority Canadians from being aware of or even accessing products and services, some of, those, some of which are vital. For that to change, the people who work on those messages need to be visible minority Canadians themselves. And so that's where the call for equity, uh, this open letter that you referred to, came from for me. You know, it, we, we needed to change representation in the industry itself, change the people who have power and authority to shape the messages that are being put out there so that the messages become more inclusive. Because right now, Canadian minorities are definitely being underserved. And right now, 
people who come from minority backgrounds are being kept out of the industry that shapes those messages. So, uh, you know, and it was a moment where there was tremendous power to demand change and there was heightened sensitivity and responsiveness. And we thought it would be a good thing to put out this open letter. It's actually modeled on a letter that exists in the US where 600 black professionals signed uh, a similar letter. And we've taken that letter, modeled on that letter, we've sort of Canadianized it for the forms that racism and exclusion takes in Canada specifically. So it's black, indigenous, and people of color. Whereas in the US, it was focused on anti-black racism. Here it's focused on the multiple forms of racism with black and indigenous uh, racism against uh, black and indigenous people uh, being foremost and other people of color following closely behind. So uh, that's sort of what it, where it came from and how it came to be. It's now had, in terms of its success, it has had nearly 600 people have signed the letter in Canada, mostly people of color, but also allies who are white. And they, are, they have signed the demands asking for the industry to change and signing the commitments to change the industry are just short of 80 agency owners and some clients who have committed to change the industry. And we're going to be uh, holding them accountable by asking them to report on their progress on each of those 15 points, the 12 for agencies and three more are making a total of 15 for clients. That's, that's great to hear. And it's a, definitely the perfect time to push that in this world environment. So I'm happy to see that change. I'm curious um, to Gavin, a couple of questions ago, you spoke about all of the like word on the street festival and, and such drawing you to Canada as the, the place that you should be. How did you feel when you actually got here? Did that change? Uh, yes and no. I live in the beach in Toronto. Uh, which when I moved in was not a very diverse neighborhood. It's still not a very diverse neighborhood. And that speaks to, you know, we now have an improved understanding of systemic racism and what that means and social barriers to, uh, you know, economic progress in various marginalized groups to, to be able to afford to live in a place like the beach or Leaside, or you know, these are affluent zones of affluence, which traditionally keep out, not because they are inherently racist, uh, consciously racist, they, but because systemic racism basically keeps those who come from these other minority groups, whether you're indigenous or a person of color, it keeps them where they are. It keeps you where you are. It keeps me where I am. I came from the outside. I came in from the outside. I, I was successful, I guess, but you know, when I came in. So as a new immigrant with the access that my pre-existing success gave me, I just, I suppose, found myself unthinkingly in this world that wasn't like me. And on one level, I, I was welcomed warmly by my neighbors who were not people of color. They were, they were extremely generous and welcoming. But I also was disconcerted by the absence of people like me. I happen to li live on a street where almost every household has at least one spouse who is a person of color, <laughs> which is an extremely rare thing. But 
Apart from my street, this is not the case for the place that I live. It has improved. It has changed over the years. I've been here now 24 years. Toronto in general has changed dramatically. I think we were, when, when I arrived in 96, the city was about 30% visible minority, and it is now 52%. That is, is changing the culture of Toronto. For those who don't come from these cultures, you, you, get, you, know, you get to celebrate it in the food and the restaurants and the, you know, the incredible diversity of cuisine. Uh, but we are now beginning to celebrate it in a cultural sense. Uh, we're beginning to see it in a diversity of literature and music, the, you know, the kind of rap music that's been created in, in Toronto, the world music, or as I call it, music. Uh, you know, the world music scene in Toronto is just incredibly vibrant. The art scene, I have a client called the NIA Center for the Arts, which is a center focused on black artists. It's incredible the kind of vibrant life that these multicultural communities have enriched Toronto with. So when I arrived, I was welcomed and I felt very much at home because of that welcome. The official public embrace of multiculturalism enshrined in things like the Multiculturalism Act, all of those things gave me great reassurance. But I was very... uh, it's almost hurtful to have to experience being the only person in the room. The, the only person in the room syndrome is, is, a, is a very difficult thing to have to live with. And from that time to this, I've seen Toronto go to a place where I'm increasingly not the only person in the room. Uh, but I still routinely join organizations because I have happened to be in a position of authority or a position of power or an influence because I own a company. I routinely find myself in rooms where I look to find people of color and don't. So I might be, I might be the only person or there might be one or two other people. And this happens to this day. So it tells you that when the institutions that contain or control how we behave, who employs who, what gets awarded, these power structures when they are dominated by People who don't look like me, people like me will never be given access. And that's not fully changed yet. A lot of my work is devoted to that, creating that change and being a loud, perhaps troublemaking voice, <laughs> you know, for that. It, and it, uh, yeah, I'm not going to stop, we, I guess. We, we need more loud troublemaking voices, I think, until we do change. So thank you for championing that cause. Yeah, that's important work. Thank you very much. And uh, we could sit here and talk with you all day long. Um, We're having a great time, but we are unfortunately running out of that time. (laughs) So if you wouldn't mind kind of um, ending our conversation on letting us know where our listeners can purchase, understand, and how and where they can follow you online and in social media. Certainly. Uh, So the best way I know is you can order the book directly from Moenzi House, which is www.moenzihouse.com slash understand, which is spelled like understand without the D. And you can also order it through any local bookstore. If you support a local bookstore, you can order it through them. Um, And yes, through Indigo and Amazon. I'm all, in terms of 
following me and what I do and, you know, all the noise I make and the trouble I cause. Uh, I am very active on social media and somewhat unavoidable. <laughs> uh, my Twitter and Instagram handles are the same. Idea Walla, one word. Idea and Walla is spelled with two L's and an A-H at the end. And you can find me on Goodreads and you can find me on LinkedIn. And I have an author website, which is gavinbarrett.com. Um, perfect. Thank you, Gavin. And on that topic, perhaps uh, can you grace us with a reading? Absolutely. Um, I am going to read a piece from a sequence of nine poems called The Novena to St. X. And this is a, a part of one of the poems because it's a fairly long poem. So I'll just read one part of it. So this poem is called uh, The Church of the Corner. Um, Novena to St. X, The Church of the Corner. Onyx holds a cup of ashes, a paisley, the ripened mango of my childhood hanging from the Christmas tree. Here in incongruous drifts of sand, white as snow, far from chinars now, bare-boned in the acrid, cordite air of their beautiful valley, I haggle over the papier-mâché. Somewhere, a Ladakhi woman, her skin cracked leather, must have chewed on this and spat it out, newsprint staining her lips black, her teeth missing, gums aching, her hat felt like it was winter. Planes land and lay routinely, they say, but routine is all that makes it so in this high, slow country. It's dogs bred for lion-maned looks, and it's dances with old, cold, evil, masks of spirit and fat tea, salty with yak butter. Or does some carpet-weaving child do double time as the frame stretches the field of silk in knotted loops and satin pile? A tree, a leaf, a bird, woods, a garden where good is brought by Allah's hand, while ink-stained lips move silently, like prayer moves. Masticated pulp flies into a bowl kept for the purpose, is mashed, pressed, formed, painted, a repeating field of star and crescent moon and sky, or that tree, leaf, bird, wooded place, garden of good, shellac hardening over it as eyes glazed. The boy knots his way through the tapestry, sheen changing as the light goes west. That's beautiful, Gavin. Thank you so much for being here today and answering all of our questions. We had a great time. Um, thank you for being a troublemaker and <laughs> doing all the important work you do. Thank you for having me. I'm very grateful to be on this podcast. You guys are doing a real service to writers. Thanks, Gavin. Wonderful to have you. Wonderful to be here.
Wow, what an amazing speaker Gavin is, Brandy. He really is. That's the main reason we had to have him back on for this episode. Both you and I were so impressed with his poetry reading last month and everything that he does within our industry and our community. I'm so glad we had a chance to take a deeper dive into everything with him today. That was really excellent. Absolutely. And seeing a bit about what makes him uh, tick, I suppose, and uh, what's important to him and all the important work that he is doing for authors everywhere. Exactly, Chris. And it was great to hear him give us another poem at the end of the interview. I could hear, I could listen to him read his poetry all day long. So I was glad to have him back for that too. Me too. I, honestly, I really do hope he records it. Yes, I know. He, sh he should definitely do that as an, as an audio book. I would listen to it for sure. <laughs> well, now seems the perfect time to announce the news from our members. We have already discussed Jeannie Girard's participation in the Literation 2020 Festival. And you just heard all about Gavin Barrett's poetry collection release, Understand. So that takes us to Ellen Marie Francisco, one of the newest members to Canadian Authors Toronto Branch. She published her first book, Good Girl's Guide to County Jail for the Bad Girl in Us All. Gotta say, I love that title. With Friesen Press in 2017. Her second piece of fiction, Catastrophic Expectations, Sex, Love, and the Pursuit of Marriage, is being published in September 2020 by the Permanent Press. Those both sound great, Brandy. Ellen will be joining us on next month's episode of Words with Writers podcast, and we can't wait to hear an excerpt from her upcoming novel. That's right, Chris. And if any of you, our beloved listeners, have an accomplishment or upcoming publication announcement, or if you want to be featured on the podcast, please email me at batannerphotos at zoho.com or chris at cjgorman at gmail.com. And please feel free to send us your comments or suggestions about the show. We love to hear from you. For sure. And that brings us to the end of our fourth episode of Words with Writers podcast. Thank you for being with us this month. And we will be back with you again on September 19th. Yes, thank you to our loyal listeners. Thank you to Gavin Barrett for joining us today. Uh, have a great day, everyone. Bye.